Thank you guys for being here. Um, we have been working through the book of Exodus. Today is our 98th message in the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter number 40. You're going to actually start today. We're going to be in verse number 22 is where we're going to be where we start. But before we get there, I want to do a little bit of a history lesson, kind of make sure we're all kind of up to speed with what's going on in the story. And a lot of times I think we lose sight of kind of where things all got started. So we've been with these Israelites as they were in enslavement, right? They were slaves in Egypt. And what we find is the fact that this enslavement that started, it started 430 years earlier, okay? 430 years earlier, there had been a man named Joseph. And Joseph uh, was, was used uh, actually to save the Egyptian nation. It was instrumental in making sure that they were protected from starvation as a famine came upon the, upon the, came upon the land. And it was through miraculous insight that God gave Joseph that he was able to see what was coming. And what was interesting was the fact that by the fact that he was able to save the Egyptians, at the same time, that famine was hitting his own land. He was from a place called Canaan. And what he did was he invited his family to come. And eventually, they came and made their home there in Egypt. And God provided for them miraculously. And what was so amazing is the fact that they literally integrated their lives right into the culture of the Egyptians. They integrated their, the way that they lived. In fact, their, even their religious beliefs were influenced by this. And in this land, when they were flourishing, guess what they did? They multiplied. Now, they were there for about 14 generations. In that 14 generations, they grew and grew and grew and grew from just a small group to millions of people. And there was a guy named Pharaoh. Well, not named Pharaoh, but there was a guy who was a Pharaoh who was the leader of Egypt. And what he did was he started looking around at all these people and he's going, wow, you know what? <laughs> There's a lot of them. And if they were to get upset at us, this could be a problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to put them in enslavement. We're going to control them. So he started locking down. And what happens was where they were at one point, they were equals. Now they became slaves. And now this enslavement became something that God or, or that, that was used to break the people's spirits. And then what we found was over about a 400-year window, the people finally decided that, you know what, they've had enough. It became so heavy upon them that they cry out for help. And when they cry out, that breaks that 400 years of silence where, guess what, because the time while they were in Egypt, they weren't depending on God. They weren't serving God. They were serving themselves, right? And here they cry out, and boy, God responds immediately because of God's heart and because of God's love. Instead of being like, you know what, I've been waiting for 400 years, you just sit a little while. No, he didn't respond that way. He immediately responded by, in the fact, not only did he respond, but he already had someone in the wings ready to deliver them. He had the deliverer ready, an Israelite named Moses. And God had put him through a whole lot of stuff to make sure he was ready at the time. And God used Moses then to go to Egypt. And what happened was he brought, God used Aaron, his brother, and Moses to, 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 to inflict plagues upon the nation. And these plagues came, and boy, they overwhelmed the nation. What we found was Pharaoh had a hardened heart, but eventually over time, he eventually broke his will, and he was willing to let them go. And the last, which, the last of these plagues was one of death, where God was going to bring death upon the eldest son of the home. And what happened was the people were protected, the Israelites were protected because of the blood of a Passover lamb. And it was, the lamb, it was that lamb that was the, was the deliverer for them in that instance. But then God used Moses to draw the Israelites out. And once they're set free, they come out. Now you're looking at millions of people marching out of Egypt, and they're heading into the promise, or heading, actually heading into the wilderness. 
And what we find here is the fact that as he leads them, they're supposed to be going to an abundant land. An abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place that's going to be wonderful and joyous. But what's interesting is that this very land was a land that was promised to their ancestors. Okay? Way back in the day, Joseph had a father. His name was Jacob, whose name God changed his name to Israel. And Israel actually had abandoned that very land because of the same famine that came. And we look at that and we go, wow. So the same famine, 430 years, was the thing that drew them out of their promised land and took them to Egypt. Now, we know in the Bible that Egypt is a picture of sin. It's a picture of the world. And what we find here is they went and made their home in Egypt. The very place that they thought would be their place of deliverance was, in fact, their place of enslavement. Okay? And there's a picture here for you and I to consider for our own hearts and lives, but we're not going to get into that right now. But their deliverer, right, empowered by God, has drawn them out of Egypt. And now they're headed on their way to Canaan, but they're going to go by way of a place called the wilderness, okay? The wilderness. So we see here that they are in this wilderness. And what's interesting about the wilderness is the wilderness is going to bring a whole new series of challenges. They're going to be put in situations where they get to make choices, okay? Now, some of these circumstances that they're going to be in are self-inflicted. Some are just their what's going on because of where they're at. And each one of the occurrences, they'll get a chance to either choose to follow God and go God's way by faith, or to follow their flesh and their emotions and go their own way, okay? The choices that they will make will determine whether or not they ever get into the promised land or when they get into the promised land. And what we've learned through our study is that the Israelites, their story is a mirror of our story, right? It's a mirror of us. And what we do is we equate this Christian life, we equate it to this Israeli journey. And what we find is the fact that if we were, right, as Christians, or just like these Israelites, we were born into a land that was ruled by an evil taskmaster, right? Satan, right? He is the prince and the power of the air. This is his territory. And we were born here, and we're born into the bondage, not of physical labor, but bondage to sin, to our fleshly desires. The Bible talks about the fact that we are born with a sin nature, a nature to do wrong, right? We're all born with it. It came from Adam. Look at this in Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We inherited this sin nature, and we're born into this slavery. Not only a slave to sin, but a slave to our desires of our flesh. With so every day we struggle with this. Romans 6, verses 16 through 22 says this, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So if we submit ourselves to our sinful desires, guess what? We serve them. And if we serve them, guess what? That makes them our master. But at the same time, if we serve righteousness, if we serve godliness, if we give our hearts to the Lord, then we serve him. And guess what? Then he becomes our master. Verse 17 says this, But God be thanked that you were the, that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. In verse 18, and then being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Praise the Lord, right? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through our receiving of Christ as our Savior, that, that through his sacrifice, we're delivered from sin and the service of sin. And we're given the opportunity, which is miraculous, that you and I, knowing who we are, we're given an opportunity to actually serve the Lord in righteousness. Verse 19 says this, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, understanding our tendency of, of sin. 
For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. He says, boy, you've been delivered, man. You used to serve that flesh, but now God's given you an opportunity. Look at this. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. It is impossible for us to serve the Lord in righteousness without the intervention of Christ. We can fool ourselves, but the Bible says all of our righteousness appears filthy rags before the Lord. Verse 21 says this, For what fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are, not ashamed, ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Our service to sin, well, guess what it leads to? An inescapable death and a servant, a, a captivity to sin. Then verse 22 says this, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. He says, boy, oh boy, I got some place for you. I got an abundant place for you. I got some place that's going to be incredible. But see, once we came from Christ, once we received Christ by faith, and the bondage was broken, man, sin no longer had the power over us that it used to have, right? No longer did it have control over us, but no longer we attached to the debt that was linked to sin, which is death. We're no longer bound by death. We've been delivered from that penalty. So what happens is our deliverer, Jesus, who is pictured in Moses, delivers us from our Egypt, which is our sin, which is our bondage to our flesh, and he's to bring us to a promised land. Okay? This is a place where we will find abundance with God. This is where we will walk in fellowship with God. This is where we will walk in intimacy with God. And understand, this is not an unreachable fantasy land, but this is in fact what God intends for us when we're on earth. That's the whole point. See, as we discussed last week, God's done all the work. You and I don't work our way to the abundant life. We surrender our way to the abundant life. Understand, God's provided peace, love, joy, security, and abundance. All we have to do is trust Him and live in them. Romans 8.37 says this, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Notice it doesn't say you will be more than conquerors. He says you are currently, as we stand, as a born-again child of God, you are a conqueror. God has already provided the promised land. It is available. The problem is that just like the Israelites, they used to have the promised land. And they abandoned the promised land because fear took hold. And they left what was given to them following their fears. And you see, if you're a child of God, man, then you've experienced the abundant life. And you go, well, I don't know. I don't remember that. Think back to the day you got saved. If you received Christ as your Savior, you submitted yourself to God, you were, literally went from being a child of the world, a child of Satan, to being a child of the King you are truly a child of the king. We've been offered an abundant life. He says, look, I've got a kingdom for you. There's peace, there's love, there's security, and there's abundance. We've got all of these things available to us. And in that moment of salvation, guess what? You were standing in the promised land. You're experiencing all of that stuff. The problem is for most of us, we left it. Because we only stay for a limited amount of time, unfortunately, because of our tendency as human beings. We live in our flesh. And because of whatever comes, fear, doubt, whatever it may be, circumstance, we fall prey to the cares of the world. And the next thing you know, we're no longer experiencing love, joy, peace, security, and abundance. We're living in fear. And this is just what's happened, right, to the Israelites. They left where they were instead of trusting God, where the land that was promised to them, it was the promised land. Do you hear the title? Mm -hmm. 
The promised land. That's your land. They left it and abandoned it because you know what? It wasn't good enough. Egypt was the answer. And Egypt is a picture of the world. But so here they go. But what, and, we, and as we pick up in our story, understand, they're in the wilderness on their way back to the promised land. They're trying to get there now. So here we are in the wilderness. And this is where a majority of Christians are right now. They're in the wilderness, right? They're on the road. They're trying to figure out, what do I need to do in order to get there? How do I get that peace? How do I get that love? How do I get that security? How do I get that abundance? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And what we find here is the fact that every one of these folks, Christians today, they're going to be looking to go to this next level, trying to get to that abundant life. But most will die in the wilderness, having never even experienced it, except for at the moment of salvation, because they never trusted God and walked with him. They allowed their fears to impact them. So as we continue our study here in the wilderness, guess what? They're on their way back. This is the land that was promised to their grandfather or to, to Jacob's grandfather. And here we are, right? The promised land set before us. And it was the same famine that came that made a way for them to go to Egypt that they could have trusted God in that moment and said, you know what? We will not leave because this is what God gave us. It's not a matter of of following our fears. It's a matter of walking by faith, not being impacted by what we see. A famine's a scary thing, but all of us have experienced circumstances and situations that are frightening. And in those moments, we have a choice. React in fear and run to the world or stay where we are and trust God to provide. And because of that choice, his family will make their life in Egypt and they will spend 14 generations under tyrannical, torturous bondage. And when they finally come to grips and they go, whoa, God, help us out of here. And God, sure enough, man, he's right there. He delivers them. And here they go, boy, trusting God. And they're trying to get back to where they came from. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is that us? Where are we on our wilderness journey? Are we far away? Are we just at the border of Egypt? Are we closer? For each of us, it's different. But understand, God, if we look back on that good land, and you think back to your day of salvation. For me, it was August 11, 2001, about probably 9.30 at night. And I look back to that moment, and I remember coming up with tears in my eyes, understanding who I was prior to salvation, trusting God by faith, hearing the gospel, being fed the word of God, receiving it in my heart, having it change me, and free me from the bondage and standing up feeling the light, the love of God and feeling, you know what? The bondage is broken. The chains have fallen off. Praise the Lord. But as we live our lives, we march back out and we get some more chains. And we hook ourselves to the world. But guess what? When we trusted God, he did something miraculous. Colossians 1.13 says this, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Praise God. We were there, experiencing the abundant life in fellowship with God. So why did we leave? It always comes back to choices. We decide. We decide. Will we do it God's way? Will we do it our way? Right? Will I walk by faith or will I walk by fear? And we're in a world right now that's filled with fear. Yeah, yeah. And people don't make their decisions based upon what they know of God 
They're based upon what they see. And we need to get back to that place of trusting the Lord. Because guess what? He knew that famine was coming. And he also knew this pandemic was going to come. And he's saying, will you trust me? You're in the wilderness. What will you do? So as we pick up on our message today, the Israelites are on their journey. Boy, they're in the midst of the wilderness. And what we find is it's inter- integral to their success on this journey is learning how to follow the commands of God. Okay? They've got to learn how to be obedient. And that's just what they're doing here. As they're assembling the tabernacle, they're following God's instructions. In fact, in this Exodus 40, what we'll find is this phrase right here shows up seven different times. It says, as the Lord commanded Moses. So everything they're doing, they're doing it as the Lord commanded. They're following the instructions that God's given them. And we find here they've raised the tabernacle, meaning they put the structure together. They've stretched the coverings over it. They have placed the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, and they've stepped through and they hung the veil. That's where we left last week, right? They've stepped back, and now they're in a place called the Holy Place. Works out great. Holy place, all right? And this is going to be the second part of our message, which is called God's vision realized. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us, uh, Lord, the word. Thank you for the spirit of God that dwells in this place. I thank you, Lord, for those that are here receptive of what you have for us. God, I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that uh, this message will not be led by me, but Lord, to be led by you, God, that the words that I would share not be the ones that I would choose, but Lord, the very ones that you would give me. Please remove the, the human element. God, I would love today if I could just disappear and we could just hear from you, Lord. So please uh, help me, Lord, to get out of the way that you might speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Exodus chapter number 40, verses 22 through 28. I'm going to read the scripture real quick, and then I'm going to go back and we'll take it apart. So Exodus 40, verses 22 through 28, 28, it says, And he put the table in the tent of the congregation upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle, southward. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. And he burnt sweet incense thereon as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set up the hanging at the door of the tabernacle. So Israelites are now moved back. They've stepped back. They're in the holy place. They hung that veil. And in this place, remember, this is a place of worship, right? The inside is a place of intimacy with God. But on the other side of the veil, this is a place of worship. And every element that's going to be put in place is going to be towards that end. So each thing we're going to study in in these verses is going to be pointing towards that aspect of worship. The first thing we looked at was the table, okay? He mentions the table. Exodus 40, verse 22 says this, And he put the table in the tent of the congregation upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil, okay? We previously studied this. Now, we did a study back in Exodus 37 not too long ago, and we went through every single detail on this stuff. So I'm not gonna, we're not going to read all the verses and all the details. I'm just going to give you the highlights. So what do we know about this thing physically, okay? Here's a picture of what we believe it could have looked like. So this table is about three feet long. It's about two and a quarter feet high and about one and a half feet deep. It was made of shittim wood, which is a really hard wood like an acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold. So we find here this, and this is very similar. Like we studied the ark last week, the same exact kind of structure and build. It has a decorative golden crown along the top edge, just like the ark did. And like the ark, it has rings on its four corners for the staves, the poles, which would be used to move it. Only unlike the ark, this table, the staves of this table, they will be removed. When the ark was put in place, the staves always left in place. These were removed. What it shows us is the fact that there is an aspect of accessibility. So that gives us a pretty good physical understanding of it. But if we consider it now from sort of a spiritual, because we're going to look at each one of these parts from a physical aspect, we're going to look at it from a spiritual aspect. And understand the fact that the tabernacle is a representation of God's 
heavenly tabernacle. Okay, This is a physical representation. This is the most spiritually significant object that is ever created by mankind, which is what we're studying right now, okay? So keep that in mind. There's tons and tons and tons of pictures in this thing. Every single part of it has supernatural meaning. So as you consider it from a spiritual level, we see that uh, it's wood covered in gold. Now, cold gold is a representation of deity, and we find that wood is a representation of humanity. So last week we saw the, the combining of corruptible and incorruptible materials, okay? This is a picture of corruptible humanity, being combined with incorruptible God, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see the crown, right? The crown, which we saw pictured just like it is in the ark, picturing our saviors, the king of kings. Then we saw the golden rings. Rings are a representation of eternity, the four corners of the earth, God's eternity, an eternity with God available. And also the fact that the staves, they're removable, okay? They're removable. What this means is the fact that there is an accessibility here. This is something that was intended to be used by the priests. And what we see here is the fact that this table is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ uh, like the whole tabernacle does throughout it. Um, but as we go through this, it'll be a little bit more clear without also it's picturing. Next, we look at the table's positioning, okay? We understand the fact that it said in Exodus 40, 22, and it says, upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil, okay? We see the, the fact that it's placed on the northern wall, okay? Northern wall. That north, what's interesting about the where that north, and here's a picture it shows you. So the table is over here. So this is east, that's west, that's north, and this is south on this side. So we see that table set up on the northern wall. And what's interesting about the north is it's always pointing towards the celestial dwelling of God. Listen to this. Isaiah 14, 13 says this, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. We see it also in Job 37, 22, and in Ezekiel 1, 4, this reference of the north. This is where God dwells. We see here that God makes certain that we know the area where it's going to be. It says it's without the veil. So it's on the other side of the veil. On this side of the veil, we have the ark. And on the other side of the veil, without the veil, it's simply saying that it's out there. This shows us that it's an accessible place only to the sanctified priests. That's key. Okay, Not everybody's going to go in there, but sanctified priests will go beyond the veil. They will meet in that area. Pointing to the fact that the priests would have a regular access to the table, unlike the ark, which would only be accessible one day a year by one man. So this is something that the priests would be able to interact with. Picturing the availability of God's table to us as priests. The Bible says that we are priests. Priests. Uh, uh, the Bible says the fact that you and I are a royal priesthood. And this brings us to what's relevant of the table is what's on the table. This is what's key. The table has a purpose, but it's what it displays which is so very, very important. And this is where the picture is that we want to look at, okay? So we look here uh, at uh, Exodus 40, verse 23. And it says here, And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, okay? So we see here this bread. Now, this bread has some physical components. We know something about it. We studied it back in Leviticus chapter number 24, verses 5 through 9. Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9 teach us that this is 12 loaves of unleavened bread, Okay? These things are to be set in order in two rows of six. We also find out in that Leviticus that it's actually supposed to be dressed with frankincense. It's supposed to be drizzled over it. Frankincense is a representation of deity. We also see here that it's supposed to be displayed. We learn from Leviticus. It's supposed to be on display for seven days. All week long, it'll sit there. It'll be on display. And at the end of that seven days, the priests would then eat that bread, and then they would replace it with fresh bread. So there's a continual supply that was always there. So when it was taken up, it was always replaced with fresh. 
Now let's consider it from a spiritual level. We know that the Lord called himself the bread of life in John 6. He says, John 6, 47 through 48. Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. So we certainly see that the Lord is pictured in this bread, but it also pictures something else. Now when we observe the Lord's Supper, right? What do we do? We eat that unleavened bread. It's a representation. We do it in remembrance of the Lord in his broken body, a picture of his sacrifice for the sins of the world. But we also look at this and we understand the fact that Jesus was not only the bread, but the Bible says he was also the word, also the word. And we find out that in Matthew 4, 4, he talks about the fact that we're not supposed to eat, but we're not supposed to live on bread alone, but by every word that cometh from the mouth of God. So we understand that we're supposed to feed ourselves spiritually. That's supposed to be our spiritual nourishment, okay? So what we see here is that this is an ever-replenishing. So like the priests, they were intended to consume the word. They were intended to consume the bread. You and I are intended to consume the word of God. It should, be our, it should be our sustenance, our spiritual nourishment. And what's neat about it is once it's eaten, it's always replenished. What's cool, you can go read the Word of God, and you can go read something that you've read before. And you read it and you go, man, that gave me something good this time. Yeah, buddy. And you go read it a month later, and it gives you something completely different. Yeah. It's been replenished. And again and again and again and again, the Word just works that way, man. It's a never-ending supply of what we need. So the first essential instrument to worship in the Word is the Word of God, the spiritual food. In order for us to worship God, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We must have, we, it's required that we have the truth. So the very first thing, we cannot, if we're not in the Word, then we cannot worship God, okay? We're working towards that abundant life. We cannot, if we're not in the Word, we cannot worship God. Next, we examine the golden candlestick, okay? The golden candlestick. It says in Exodus 40, 24, and he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table on the south side of the tabernacle southward. So we see here the candlestick physically. We're going to give you a, a, let you look at a picture of it in just a second. Exodus 37, verses 17 through 24. If you want to look it up, you can read all about it and get all the detailed instru instru instructions about this uh, golden candlestick. But we're going to, again, stick with the highlights. So as you look at the image, uh, what we see first here, the fact that uh, this thing was made out of one piece of pure gold, okay? It was all made out of one piece, and it was beaten, right? It was beaten and formed. What it was showing is a beautiful picture there. It has seven branches. There's one in the center, then there's three on either side. Then we see here also that each, at the end of each branch, there is a lamp, okay? There's a lamp at the end. We also know that it's fueled by olive oil, and very similar to the way it was created, it was beaten. Also, this oil was not pressed. This oil is beaten for the fuel of the lamp. And we also know that this is the only light that is in the tabernacle, okay? The reason why those coverings were so important were they were to isolate it completely, make it absolutely pitch black inside. And the only light would be this candlestick. So now let's look at it spiritually, okay? It represents, obviously, in the fact that it's made of solid gold, it's a representation of God's deity. We see the fact that it was beaten, understand that's a correlation to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that as, the, as Christ as the light of the world, which he calls himself that very thing. It's important to remember that Jesus is pictured in every part of this tabernacle. Because, understand, he was the physical representation of God on earth. So this is a physical representation of God. It makes sense that he's throughout this whole thing. But our focus today is going to be a little bit somewhere else. So we see first, and then we see the, how many branches there are. There's seven of them. Now the number seven is the number of completion with God. Then we look at the fact that each one has a lamp on the end. So it is seven branches and it has seven lamps pointing to the Spirit of God that we look at in Revelations 4, 5. Okay, listen to this in Revelations 4, 5. 
And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And they go, okay, seven spirits of God. I thought there was just one, just the Holy Spirit. But understand, there's something going on here. In Isaiah chapter number 11, we're going to see there are seven qualities that are defined that are actually all seven qualities talking about the single spirit. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, addressing the seven spirits. And it says, and there, can, and, there, uh, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Okay, Jesse was King David's father, okay? So it says here, out of the stem of Jesse. So Jesse being the line of David. And it says, and a branch, okay? A branch. Understand, a branch. Notice that it's capitalized. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, and a branch shall grow up out of his roots. So we know out of the line of David, we're going to see the Lord. Verse 2 says this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord, there's one. And the spirit of wisdom, there's two. And understanding, there's three. The spirit of counsel, there's four. And might, there's five. The spirit of knowledge, there's six. And, the, and of the fear of the Lord, there's seven. So we see here there's seven different aspects of the spirit of God. And it's represented in this lamp with seven, or this candlestick with seven lamps. Then, next we look at the position, where it's sitting. It's relevant. All of these things matter. First, chapter Exodus 40, verse 24 says this, over against the table on the side of the tabernacle, southward, okay? Against simply means this. It means across from, okay? What it means is that they're positioned in the same place. One's on the north wall, and directly across from it sits the candlestick. So the candlestick is on the southern wall. We also see that, like the table, it's in an area that's available to the priest. And this is key, because understand, this is a place of worship. God wants us to worship Him. God wants us to come to Him in spirit and in truth. That's supposed to be the life that we live. Our life is supposed to be worship to God. So everything that's in this holy place is available to the priest. It's available to the individual. We see here that uh, it's picturing our availability, our availability to the Spirit of God as priests in the church age. As the Spirit comforts us, as He guides us, as He reproves us, right? As He instructs us in our lives. So the Spirit is working continually to help us, to illuminate things for us. And then last, we look at what this candlestick displays. Exodus 40, verse 24 says this, And he lighted the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So physically, it displays light, simply. It lights up. It's the only source of light within the tabernacle. When you walked in, if you were going to see anything, it was only because that light shone. Also, we know that it was to burn 24 hours a day. Just like the bread was supposed to be on display, there was always supposed to be lit. They would tend those things morning and evening so that it would constantly display the light. But spiritually, it represents the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God's influence in the world. Now, that influence is twofold, okay? If we're going to think about the influence of the Spirit of God on the earth, we look at it first of all. What does it do? The first thing it does is it permeates us. It permeates us. And it brings us from dead to alive. The King James word you'll see is quickened. Quickened, it means brought to life. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So allowing us, right, through the influence of God and through the influence of the Spirit of God, then to display the fruits of the Spirit, okay, the fruits of the Spirit, which are, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. So we're displaying these things that the Spirit of God is within us. He permeates us, and guess what? That's what comes out of us because we're allowing the Spirit of God to work in our lives. 
But then secondly, what does the Spirit do? It illuminates us. It lights us. It shows us our own hearts. Right? It deals with our sin. It looks within us that we can, re- that we can be reproved of sin, as it says in John 16, 8. But also, it looks, helps us, allows us to see into the Word that's pictured in the bread. There's a cool picture there because guess what? You can't see the bread in the tabernacle unless the light is on, the lamp. So the way you see into the Word is by way of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says this, Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Meaning you go to the Word of God, and what He does is He shows you, He teaches you, He instructs you in the Word. Right? We cannot go to God. We cannot understand the Word of God without the Spirit of God guiding us. So in order for us to worship God, we must not only have the Spirit, but we must be allowing that Spirit to guide our steps. So without the Spirit, we cannot worship God. Then third, next we see to, uh, we come to the golden altar of incense, Exodus 40, 26. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. Okay? We look at it first physically. Uh, it was about 18 inches square. It's about three feet tall. It was made of shittim wood and overlaid with pure gold, just like the ark on the table. Uh, it also had a decorative crown, just like the ark on the table. It also had, uh, the table had rings on all four corners like the others. But similar to the table, these staves were designed to be removed. Okay? This is, again, about accessibility. Remember that that ark, when it was put in place, no one touched it. Its staves stayed in place. Everything that's outside of the veil, everything in this holy place, everything there is designed to be accessible to the people that would serve in the tabernacle. So next we consider it from a spiritual level. Okay, so like the ark, we see that it's picturing, the, it pictures the corruptible nature of humanity combined with the incorruptible nature of God. It's got a golden crown, which is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see it has the four rings representing eternity with God. And by the fact that the staves are removable, it is, again, accessible. So again, we see the furnishings that picture the traits of the Lord, but there's another aspect to this golden altar, which is really, really cool. And it's, again, about what it displays. What's its function? What it does? Look at this in Exodus 40, 26. Or this is positioning, actually, sorry. Positioning's next. Before the veil, okay? Now, this is interesting. Remember, the others were against, uh, uh, what was the other one? Without the veil, okay? So the others are without the veil. This one says, what does it say? (laughs) Before the veil, thank you. Before the veil. Too many notes. So before the veil. So we've got without and we got before. Now, before, what's cool about this is where he's going to position this thing. Okay, the other two are sitting back there on the side walls. But look where this one's sitting. This one's right up against the veil. Okay, right up against the veil. The altar was to be as close as possible to the Holy of Holies, pointing to the fact that when the priests would be the closest to God was when, was when, was when they were at this altar. Okay, and that brings us to what it displays. Verse 27 says this, and he burnt sweet incense thereon as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? What we learned in our previous study of the altar is this burning of this incense. This incense was very specifically designed. It was created based upon a recipe that God ordained. He said, look, you're to do it according to my will. This is the incense you'll burn. Nothing else is to be accepted. Okay? And what we find there is the fact that it's simply showing us the fact that uh, this, this incense was to be, it was a picture of prayer. Okay? It's a picture of the prayers of God's people. Listen to this in Revelations 8, verses 3 through 4. It says, Another angel came and stood at the altar, listen to this, having a golden censer, there was given unto him much incense, 
that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So we see here that picturing, pictured in this incense is the prayers of God's people. And the smoke rises up and it billows into the holy of holies. It's prayers before the throne of God. And if they're done according to his recipe, right, the smell of the smoke would be just right and it would be received. And we think about this and we relate it to prayer. We need to make sure that our prayers are according to God's will. His recipe for prayer, not ours. Ours is selfish, right? It's to be selfless. Our, our, our prayers should bring glory to God. Listen to this in John 14, 13. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Our prayers should always, always be about God receiving glory. Yes. It's selfish prayers that God does not hear. He says, you know what? You ask amiss when you ask that way. But if you pray according to my will, guess what? I will hear you. And not only will I hear you, but I will receive you. And not only that, but I will answer your prayers. And what's so cool about this is because what's pictured in this altar is the fact that you're never closer to God than when you're praying. These guys, when they would come to that golden altar, it was right against the veil. They're literally right there. God's just, his presence is just on the other side. They're so close. And these others, man, they're important. But man, I'm telling you, when you get here, if you ever cried out to God before, and you needed him to be there for you, you never find that intimacy like when you've got your head looking up to God or your head bowed and you're crying out to him and you're bearing your heart to him. And he's like, that's what I want to hear. And like that sweet smelling smoke received by God. And he goes, listen to that. Beautiful prayers of my saints. Praise the Lord. And like the priests, never closer. If we're not praying according to God's will, we cannot worship him in prayer, which brings us to the last part, and I'm almost done. The door of the tabernacle. The door, this is the very last part. This is the outer door. Exodus 40, 28 says this, and he set up the hanging at the door of the tabernacle. Okay, physically, this is an intricately embroidered uh, piece of fabric. We've got a picture that I can show it to you. Um, and what we see here is the fact that this thing is blue, it's white, it's purple, it's red. It's very similar to the veil. Okay, very similar to the veil, very similar. But what's interesting, the veil is basically the exact same thing. It's called the veil. This is the door. And when we get to the outside, guess what? They're all the same thing. They're pieces of fabric hanging, but one's a veil, one's a door, and the one outside is a gate. And in our next message, I'll address why that is. But um, we look here also that this is the only entry into the tabernacle. So from a physical standpoint, that's what we know. But spiritually, check this out, okay? This is awesome. Jesus, John 10, 7, 7 to 11. The only way, okay? If you're going to enter into a relationship with God, it is only by one way. John 10, verse 7 through 11. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and listen to this next part, and that they might have it more abundantly. An abundant life, he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Lord not only wants us to have a new spiritual life, praise God, but he wants us to have an abundant 
spiritual life. That's why he came, right? That's why he came. That's why he died. It's about restoring humanity. If you were to enter a relationship with the Lord, with, if you were to enter a relationship without God, guess what? You have no relationship with God. If you do it without Christ, it is not real. There are a lot of people out there that are trying to work their way to a relationship with God through their membership or through their uh, baptism as a baby or whatever thing they're doing, but it's not through Christ. And guess what? They may believe they have a relationship, but when, he, when they stand before him, you say, well, you know what? Away from me, for I never knew you workers of iniquity. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? In thy name, did we not do many wonderful works? I never knew you. You thought we had a relationship, but in fact, we never did. Understand, guys, this is a matter of realizing the fact that the door is Christ and Christ alone. In order to truly worship God and experience the abundant life that he has for us, we must come through Christ by faith, the door. We must have a God-honoring prayer life at the altar of incense. We must be surrendered and led by the Spirit, pictured in the candlestick. We must be feeding on the Word of God, the table of showbread. Amen. You see, like Jacob, right, the father of the Israelites, he was in the promised land, right? We were in the promised land. At the moment of salvation, we experienced the abundant life God had for us. We came through the door by faith. We prayed for salvation according to God's will. We had surrendered to the Spirit of God that then indwelled us. And we had just feasted on the Word of God through the gospel that had been shared with us. The things that we need for the abundant life we had already received. In Revelation chapter number 2, the Lord addresses a church, a church of Ephesus. And Ephesus, understand, man, they were doing so much right. They got started on the right foot. And man, they kept on doing the right thing. They were sharing the word. They were standing up for the faith. They were witnessing to people. They were doing everything they needed to do. But what happened was they lost sight of their heart. And they got so much wrapped up in doing the works, but they lost sight of why they were doing it, right? And listen to what Jesus says to them. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, Nevertheless, even though you did everything, you're doing everything right. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. You're doing all the right stuff. You show up to church on Sunday. You read your Bible. You're praying. You're doing all the work you need to. But your heart's not surrendered. You're not doing it out of charity. You're doing it because you know you're supposed to, not because your desire and your heart is broken to serve me. Right? They were going through the motions, but their heart was far from God. They had been in the promised land, abundant faith, walking with God, but they weren't anymore. And the Israelites, right, their ancestors, they left Canaan out of fear and a lack of faith. What's our excuse? Why did we leave? Maybe you're in Canaan. Maybe that's the life you live. Praise the Lord. Maybe you're experiencing the abundant life right now and you're just sitting here going, man, preacher, it's awesome. Woo! Maybe you're not. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're going, you know what? I want it. <laughs> I'm ready for it. And you think back and you can't even remember when you left. You don't even know what happened. We just lost sight of our blessings. 
We lost sight of our relationship with God and what was supposed to be so valuable. He was supposed to be number one in our life. But then this thing popped up and this thing popped up and you don't understand. Well, then, oh, that was, yeah, if I look back, that's when this happened. Oh, yeah. And all the distractions that the world will bring to us to draw our eyes back to Egypt. And we'll walk out of the promised land and we'll step into the wilderness. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves seated in Egypt chained to godly knows what idol that's in our life that we've sold ourselves out to. Not because that land's not available. God's done all the work. It's waiting on us, but we're not there. The Israelites are heading back. Praise the Lord. They're 430 years late, but hey, praise the Lord. They're still, they're heading back. How about us? Are we heading back? Are some of us here on our way to Egypt? Or some of us heading back to Canaan. And some go, you know what? But, but, but I mean, I want to, but I mean, how do you do that? How do you get? I mean, I'm stuck in the wilderness and I'm just kind of like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure. God told us today. He taught us. Come humbly through the door. Amen. Come to God with a humble heart. Broken for who he is and who we should be. Come to him with that humble heart. Pray earnestly to God for him to receive glory through our lives. That's what we're doing. Allowing the Spirit to guide every step we take. And then, boy, right? That we would uh, feed ourselves every day, continually, on the Word of God. And if we read that, man... Come humble before God, pray earnestly to the Lord that he would lead our lives, allowing the Spirit to guide our steps and feeding ourselves on the Word of God. And we did that every single day of our lives. That's the way we lived. <laughs> we wouldn't find ourselves dissatisfied. We wouldn't find ourselves frustrated by the life that we live. No. Literally, we would find ourselves instead living in Canaan, living in the abundant life as a picture of God's vision realized. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. It's an abundant life he has for us. Why don't we go? If you're in the wilderness, recognize that you're in the wilderness. Don't tell yourself you're in that abundant life when you know you're not. Most Christians live their lives in denial. They never face where they're at. But we search our own hearts and as the Spirit God shows us, man, and as the word of God reveals to us, we need to respond and change our hearts and say, you know what, God, I'm not going to work my way back to you. I'm going to surrender my way back to you. Because that's what this whole thing's about. Surrender. Do it our way or do it God's way. Our way will eventually lead us to Egypt. God's way will put our feet firmly in the promised land. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today and for the message you've given us and, Lord, what you've shown us in the Scripture. God, what, a, what an amazing, supernatural, incredible book you've given us. And, God, thank you for the Spirit of God that dwells within us that helps us to discern and understand. Lord, I pray that you've spoken to our hearts. If no one else today received anything, I know that you have spoken to me clearly. And, God, I pray that you help my heart and mind to be always focused on Canaan, Lord, as I stand in the wilderness working. Lord, uh, to get myself out of the way. God, I pray for us, Lord, that you help us to surrender 
and do things your way instead of ours. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, <laughs> Pastor, I'm in, I know if I'm honest with myself, I know I'm in the wilderness. And, Lord, I, and, and I know that I want to be in the promised land. I want to experience the abundant life of Christ. I want to walk with God in fellowship. I want to have the peace of God in my life. I want to experience that love. I want to experience that compassion. I want to feel that abundance. But I'm just not there. Pray for me. Pray for me, Lord. Pray for me that I could get there. If that's you today, and I'm not going to ask, this is not for my sake. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in acknowledgement and say, you know what? I know I'm in the wilderness. And I know that I want to be in the abundant life, but I'm not there. Pray for me, Pastor, that I will get there. This is not, I'm just asking you, if that's you, and you'll be honest with God, just lift your hand and say, you know what? That's me today. That's me today. Thank you. Thank you. Say, I want to be in the promised land, but I know I'm not there. Pray for me that God will guide me. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I, I'm not even sure I understand everything that's going on. That message went over my head and hey, that's okay. But if you realize today that you're here and you say, you know what, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't even know what exactly what you were talking about. That abundant life talking about the moment of salvation, I can't think back to a time like that in my life. For me, it was August 11, 2001, guys. I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget it because I went from being dead spiritually to being alive. And I met the Lord Jesus Christ personally, and he changed my life forever. And if you're here today and you see, you know, I've never experienced that. If you're online, you've never experienced that. Today can be your day. It's not a matter of a ceremony. It's a matter of surrender. He's done all the work. He's waiting on us. And if you are out there and you say, you know what? I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I'm ready. I know that I'm lost. I know that if I died today, I would not open my eyes with God. I know I would open my eyes in torments and in fear. And I don't want that. I want to trust the Lord with my life. I want to give Him me. And if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right here. It's not magical. There's nothing about the words of the prayer. There's nothing about a ceremonial aspect of it. This is between you and God. He's calling your heart, and all he's doing is asking you to respond. And if you'll respond, and you're earnest about it, and you're truthful about it, God will save you. Now, if you say this prayer, but you don't mean it, you say it because of the ceremony, save your breath. Don't waste your time. It'll do nothing for you. But if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you that opportunity now. And this is just a matter of your willingness to surrender your heart to him. As he calls you, all you need to do is respond. In your heart and mind, or if you want to pray out loud, it doesn't matter if you're online. I'm going to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It's not a matter of the words, as I said. It's just a matter of your heart. As God listens to your heart, if you'll cry out to him, he will receive you and he will save you. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I have no doubt of what I've done wrong in this life. I've seen it. And I'm filled with regret. But I believe that you, that you love me. That you're willing to save me. That you died on the cross for the sins of the world. I'm asking you by faith to come into my heart. To forgive my sins. And to save my soul. Lord, thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks.
Amen.